So tonight's Old Testament Bible reading comes from Psalm 119, verses 73 to 88, and that's on page 438 of the Black Bibles. It's Psalm 119, starting at verse 73. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless toward your decrees that I may not be put to shame. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Though I'm like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decrees. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cause. They almost wiped me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your mouth. Uh, the second reading comes from uh, 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, uh, which is on page 843 of the Pew Bibles. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godlessness but denying godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, just as Janez and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as is the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone." 
You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposers, uh, imposters uh, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thanks, Nick. Welcome to church. There's a few new faces. My name is Paul. It's good to see you here tonight. We're working our way through 2 Timothy, so please keep your Bibles open there. Tonight's a, a very famous chapter, famous verses. Uh, I do hope that you will be eagerly uh, expecting God to teach you tonight through the Scriptures. Sometimes I think we come with our minds so uh, cluttered with other things that we don't really allow God to shape our thinking. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you a moment silent by yourself. Maybe just take a moment by yourself asking God to teach you tonight. psalmist says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Father, I pray that your words would be sweet to us tonight, that we would love them, delight in them. Uh, Lord, would you teach us and train us and rebuke us and correct us through them. I ask that for Jesus' sake. I said to you, what would life look like in the last days? What would life look like here on earth in the last days? What kind of things would you think of? Uh, By the last days, I don't mean sort of the Hollywood flicks. By the last days, it's a Bible term. uh, Paul uses it in verse 1. There'll be terrible times in the last days. The last days are just the time between when Christ first came and when he'll return. The last days are the times between... Uh, Sin's been forgiven at the cross, the tomb is empty, a death has been defeated, but we're still waiting for the return of Christ. Timothy lived in the last days, you live in the last days, I live in the last days. And the question is, what do you expect life to look like in the last days? I'll change the question slightly. What do you expect churches to look like in the last days? I guess we think of words like uh, progress. We might think of words like uh, growth, revival. Uh, You might think of words like joy. Uh, But Paul is actually quite grim and quite bleak in these verses. He starts in verse 1 by saying, there'll be terrible times in the last days. Uh, Sure, there'll be times of, of great joy and there'll be times of great success. 
there'd be great times of revival. But he says in the last days, in the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, there will be literally stressful times. And then he gets to list these, 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 uh, these sins or these vices. Uh, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, without love, and unforgiving. What you've got here in chapter 3 is that uh, we've got a, a change in, in camera angle. In chapters 1 and 2, we've been focused on leadership in the church. And here you have the, the wide camera angle lens. And he shifts from the leaders onto the world and onto the church as a whole. And these verses are not just some bleak prophecy about society, declining morality, declining compassion. Paul is writing to a pastor, to Timothy, to encourage him as he ministered to a church in these last days. And he says, take note, mark this, be realistic See, if you know what to expect in the last days, you'll be less discouraged in your faith. If you know what to expect in these last days, you'll be realistic about life, uh, success, but hard times. If you know what to expect, you'll be realistic about ministry, and you'll have a much firmer faith in Christ. I've been grappling this week. Why did, why did Paul bother to tell Timothy what life was going to be like? Why didn't he just say, hey, Timothy, open your front door, go out into Ephesus, Take a look around you, the world's a mess. Why did he bother to list these 18 things? I think it's because you and I need to be realistic and not blinkered as to what life is really going to be like. What's going to go on in the world and in the church. Tonight we're going to start with signs of a worldly church. What do you think the signs would be that a church has lost its way, a church has become worldly, a church is not focused on God anymore? I hope you wouldn't just talk about the music or the, the graphic design or the publicity or the audiovisuals. That's not what Paul lists, is it? Look with me, verse 2, 18 vices. There will be terrible times in the last days. He begins with people in general. People in general will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient. But get out to verse 4. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. It's a bizarre description. He seems to start with the world, start with society, lovers of themselves, lovers of money. He ends in verse 5 by talking about the church having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's easy to spot. He starts with the world, he ends with the church. What's hard to spot is where he crosses over from one to the other. When is his description of society ending and the church starting? And that's Paul's point entirely. What Paul is saying is this. In these last days, there'll be some churches that look just like the world. In these last days, there'll be terrible times when the church loses its distinctiveness. And the Christians, the so-called believers in Jesus, look no different from the world. Of course that's going to be the case. When churches are led and shaped and taught by people who have wandered from the truth, then that church will look just like the world. And when the people themselves are taught and led and shaped by the world and not by the word, then that church will reflect all the grim 
characteristics of the society around it. See, when I first read this list, I thought, yeah, that's a good description of our world. And I was kind of taken aback, and I thought, no, it's not just our world. It's actually some churches out there. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive. And if you're honest with yourself, that could be a description of you. So what are the signs of the worldly church? There seem to be a random order, but there's some structure to it. He begins in verse 2 by mentioning the word love twice. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money. He ends in verse 4 again with that word love. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And right in the middle, two key words, verse 3, without love. So you can tell what a church is really like by what they love. That's true of you, isn't it? I can tell what you love by what you talk about, by how you give your time and your money. If you know me well, you know that I love coffee. I talk about it a lot. I drink about it a lot. I spend too much money on it. Or triathlons, I talk about it. I buy magazines. I spend too much money on it. What you love will dictate what you do. Let me give you three. Just, just pick three of these things. I think shape a worldly church. Here's the first one. It's in verse 2. People will be lovers of, of themselves. In these kind of churches, it's not about loving God and all his glory. It's not even about loving other people. In these kind of churches, people will love themselves. We are the object of our worship. And so you'll find people-centered programs and people-centered preaching and, and the aim of the church is to improve yourself and to help yourself and to restore that most precious thing called self-esteem. Now, you can do it. You can feel good about yourself. Uh, on Sundays, people will come into church and they feel tired and weary and crushed and fed up. And, uh, and my job as a priest is to make sure that you leave this building feeling wonderful about yourself. And these kind of churches, people will flock in and the unchurched will love it because... You're never challenged. You're never challenged to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And sin is never mentioned because that might make you feel bad. Uh, they talk about God. Of course they talk about God. But it's all about what I can do for God. Lord, I will lift you up as though God needed a help. Lord, I'll do this for you as though he needs our helping hand. That's a church where it's all about us. I don't mishear me. We are precious children of God, and God loves us incredibly. He's poured his love out of us in Christ, and, and we're righteous, and we're redeemed, and we're precious children. But it's because of God, not because of us. We're lovers of self. Just, just look at your conversations. How much of your conversations here tonight will be, will be about you? Me, 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 me. Lovers of, lovers of money. Verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people are eager for money have wandered from the faith. And it seems that nothing much changed between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy because people are still lovers of money. And let's be really honest uh, 2,000 years later, we still love money. Don't you? 
Uh, we see through the prosperity gospel, you know, we don't buy that, that the more you give God, the more he will bless you abundantly. But in reality, we still love money. There's nothing evil about money. Money is important. Money is good. You need money to live. You need money to do ministry. But when you love money, when money dictates what you do and defines who you are, then that's very dangerous. Uh, John Stott, great preacher, great writer, he said this. Most evangelical Christians are perversely more excited by a new carpet than a new convert. We get more excited by the new carpet than a new convert, or put in whatever you want there, uh, the new pews or the new sound system or the new sign at the front or the new coffee machine, and we get more excited about those things than the spiritual dimension in people's life. Of course, you need money to do Christian ministry, but what's so difficult to shake off is a love of it. I struggle with it. Uh, To use money without being consumed by money and to make money serve our ministry goals rather than dictate our ministry goals. If a church loves money, if we worship money, then a church will be no different to the world. We just want bigger buildings with nicer seats and newer Bibles and the best coffee and the latest PA system. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're good things as long as they serve the gospel rather than us being in love with them. Lovers of self, lovers of money. The third one is this. Lovers of pleasure. Write down in verse 4. Treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wouldn't you describe our society as loving pleasure? Uh, the world outside, it just loves entertainment, loves being pleased. And you know that shift has taken place in the church as well. When you leave church on a Sunday night and rather than asking, uh, what did you learn about God? What was it about his character that struck you? What was it about uh, the people you talked to that you saw? Yeah, you saw Christ in them. You don't ask those questions. You ask the question, uh, did I enjoy it? Was I entertained? And you kind of rate a church service or a church sermon a bit like a movie. Did I feel good when I left church? The problem with a pleasure-seeking church is that you can never challenge people about what they're doing because as long as it makes them happy and brings them pleasure, who am I to challenge them? That's the worldly church. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure instead of loving God. And that's just stop and think. How does God describe his church? God says his church is his bride. The bride of Christ, set apart, pure, holy, different to the world. But when the church looks no different from the world, it's just a, a sad and tragic day. Well, again, what struck me was down in verse 5. These churches, they are loving pleasure rather than loving God, but they have the form of godliness. They have a form of godliness. They have all the outward signs, if you want, of a church. They, they preach and they sing and they do good deeds, but they literally they lack power not deny its power they lack power of course they lack power because god isn't there god's word isn't there and god's truth isn't there so they lack the power to change lives 
How can you stop ungodliness? How can you stop boasting and, and pride and abuse and disobedience if the word of God isn't there? How, how can you challenge people to live differently from the world if the leaders aren't? You, know, you can meet and sing and pray and serve, but it's just a secular gathering with a, a focus on a half-baked God. And Paul says, no, mark this. Don't be taken in by them. Don't be impressed by them. Verse 5, have nothing to do with them. Just see them for what they are. They're frauds. If you want to live an example, well, go to verse 6. Uh, they're the kind who, who sneak or worm their way slyly into people's homes. They gain control over people. Uh, the verse 6, that they're not uh, weak-willed because they're women they're weak will because they're easy targets, they're easy prey. They stay at home. When they go door to door, they're at home and they're loaded down. They're swayed by all kinds of desires and they are just vulnerable. There are many, many churches that prey on the vulnerable. And they'll just tell you that you can be happy and successful and you can achieve anything. But it's all about you and not about Jesus. Verse 7, always learning. They stuff their mind with facts, but they never acknowledge the truth about Jesus and grace. Now, why am I pushing this again tonight? Because I do think we're just dis- undiscerning. We just lack discernment. We need to measure and weigh everything we hear, every church we attend, and ask the question, does it look different to the world? If somebody walks into our supper tonight... And they walked in off the street, and they didn't know we were a church. And they just stood, and then they watched, and they joined in the conversation. Would they be able to say, yes, they are Christians? Or would it be just like any other social gathering? That's the signs of a worldly church. Loving of self, loving of money, loving of pleasure. Let's look at the positive. What are the signs of a God-honoring church? What should we look for in our people and our churches? Uh, the first one is, is godly examples. We need role models. We need people to, to learn from, to respect, to admire, to base your life on, to base your ministry on. Because we're all influenced by people. So I could say to you now, okay, name one sermon that has so radically changed your thinking and shaped your life. Name that sermon that changed you dramatically. And I guess you'd struggle. But if I said to you, uh, name some people. Name the people that, that have shaped you. What was it about them? What did they say? What did they do? Because people change us. For me, it was a guy called David Gibb who, in my early days as a Christian, he sat me down and taught me how to read the Bible and taught me how to, to be a Christian man. Uh, another hero of mine is a guy called David Jackman who, who really modeled and taught me how to preach as well as be a pastor. And the two go hand in hand. And for Timothy, his example, his model is his friend, his mentor, the Apostle Paul. And Paul describes his own ministry, his own life in verse 10. I'd love to have met the Apostle Paul. He sounds an amazing guy. You, however, know about my teaching and my way of life and my purpose and my faith and my patience and my love and my endurance and my persecutions and my suffering. He says, Timothy, you know about it. You live with me. You saw me. You, you went on missionary journeys with me, morning, noon, and night. You saw the way that I lived. Paul's not boasting. He's not saying, look at me, look at me. Because elsewhere, Paul has said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And he's kind of saying, you know, uh, Timothy, if you really want to see what a godly life looks like, well, look at me. Not because I'm perfect, but because I seek to honor Christ. What was it about Paul that was so different? Verse 10, you know about my teaching. The teaching according to chapter 1 is sound or is is healthy, is is life-giving teaching. Because I I don't know what Paul was like as a preacher. He might might not have been the most dynamic or the most entertaining preacher, but he taught grace. He taught sin. He talked about an amazing saviour, a crucified Christ. He talked about hope. He talked about joy. His teaching was all about Jesus. But not just his teaching. He says, you know about my way of life. Not just what I taught from the pulpit, but the way I lived. It's one of those words that only comes once in the whole New Testament. It means conduct or style. You know the way I conducted my life, the way I treated people, my attitudes, my desires. Uh, you know my purpose. If I said to you, what was Paul's purpose in life, what would you say? What, what was Paul's aim or goal? He tells us in Philippians 1, uh, for me to live is Christ. And so if you met the Apostle Paul and said, oh, what's your plan for life? What are your goals in life? What's your purpose in life? He wouldn't have talked about his career or his house or his family. He talked about his Savior, Christ. For me to live is Christ. I want to make sure that I preach Christ, I live Christ, I make disciples of Christ. His focus wasn't getting somebody into a particular church. His focus was living for Jesus. You know about my faith. A man of remarkable faith who trusted God even in chains. Who trusted God when he was shipwrecked and hungry and beaten. You know about my patience when people deserted me and people mocked me. That steady unhurried, quiet trust in God's goodness and God's sovereignty. You know about my love. Not just my love for God, but my love for people, the way I cared for people. You know about my endurance, the way I just persevered. One of the books I enjoyed most recently was this book. It's called a Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. <laughs> the Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. You might have heard of his son. His son's called Don Carson. Very famous preacher, very famous, famous academic. His father was a minister called Tom. Tom pastored a church in Canada uh, for 30, 40 years. Week in, week out, preaching, pastoring. You know, he saw very little growth, very few converts. In fact, he saw more people leave his church than join his church. But he just persevered and endured, and he didn't see the fruit of his ministry because just after he died, there was a great revival in his town. And he'd sown the seeds for people coming to faith. Just an ordinary pastor, preaching, enduring. Uh, Paul's not boasting about himself, because if you're going to boast about yourself, you would never put verse 11 in there. If you wanted to blow your own trumpet, you wouldn't talk about your sufferings. But Paul says, you know about my persecutions and my sufferings. You know how, I, as I preached Christ, I was beaten. I wasn't out to impress people. I just wanted to preach my Savior. But, verse 11, the Lord rescued me from all of them. He delivered me. He sustained me. He comforted me. In fact, Timothy, uh, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, look at it, they will be persecuted. 
Everyone, that includes you, Timothy, and me. If you want to live for Jesus and live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Again, your context or your climate or your culture will dictate what that persecution looks like. Uh, For some people today, it will be imprisonment. For us, it's more likely to be sacrifices that we make in life, in work, in choices we make. I just wonder, as you walk into church on Sunday, whether there are people here who you say, I want to be like them. I look at what they say, I look at what they do, I look at what their priorities are in life, I look at the way they conduct themselves, I look at the way they talk about Jesus and the way they handle sufferings, and I want to be like them. That should, be what, that should be the case with everybody in this church. Not just one individual, but everybody in this pew should be seeking to live a God-honoring life and say, I want to be an example for other people. A church may appear successful and effective, but... Look at their leaders, uh, look at the people in their pews, look at their life, their teaching, their patience, their love, their endurance, their sufferings. Are they a godly example? Uh, but more than that, a god in church will have their whole ministry soaked in the scriptures. Uh, this is the, the climax of the whole chapter. Paul is challenging Timothy to be loyal to what he learned, to hold on to the Bible. Look at verses 14 to 17. As for you, Timothy, continue. Keep going in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Who did Timothy learn his faith from? The Apostle Paul. Yes, of course he did. But he learned his faith from his grandmother and his mother. Verse 15. How from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Timothy, think back to that time when you sat on your mum's lap or your grandmother's lap and they opened the Old Testament with you and they pointed you to the scriptures and they pointed you to Jesus. Think back to what brought you to faith. You, think back to what brought you to faith. I'm assuming it was somebody who pointed you to the Bible, who opened the scriptures with you, who talked about Christ. But this is the key thing. He's saying something like this. Uh, verse 15. The Holy Scriptures, they are able. They're sufficient to make you wise for salvation. It's through the Scriptures that people come to faith. But, verse 16 and 17, those same Scriptures keep you in the faith. Those same Scriptures teach and rebuke and correct and train you so you'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's saying, start with the Bible. Stick with the Bible and continue with the Bible. It was the Bible that brought you to faith. It was the Bible that will equip you for ministry. You see, Timothy is saying, you don't need me anymore. I'm in jail. In fact, you don't need anybody because you've got the scriptures. You don't need a kurong. You don't need a, a how to do a church book. You don't need a church planting manual. You just need the Bible. And see, Paul is writing these famous verses in verses 16 and 17 not to prove the inspiration of the Bible. They do do that. Much, much more than that, he's saying that it's the Bible, it's the Scriptures will actually equip you for every good work and equip you to live your life under the Lordship of Christ. Look at these verses with me, verse 16. Look at that first word, all. All of Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament here. That was the Scripture of the day. 
but more than that, you know, in 2 Peter 3, Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul calls Luke's gospel scripture. So that word scripture is used to describe the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the epistles, the gospels, the apocalyptic literature, all scripture. And it's God-breathed. It is the very spoken, breathed-out word of God. You ever thought about that, that actually God speaks to you when you open the Bible? It's not just a textbook or a handbook. It's like the living, majestic, holy God is actually breathing out and speaking words to you. And it's useful for what? For teaching you. It's an education word. It's, it's teaching your mind. It's helping you to understand God's, God better, his character, his world, his son, his purposes. It rebukes you when you open the Bible because what it does, it kind of shines a light on your life and, and exposes the error. And it corrects you. The correcting word is putting you back on the right track. It put, exposing the wrong track, putting you back on the right track. And it trains you in righteousness. It actually equips you to live for Jesus. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, how do you spot a church that is really God-honoring? Well, you, you ask the questions. Is this church soaked in the Bible? Do they preach the Bible? Do they live the Bible? Do they preach all scripture? Uh, do they preach Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to Revelation? Or do they just pick bits of it that they quite like? Uh, do they use the Bible in courses to train you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better worker, a better friend? Uh, do they use the Bible uh, to train people in, in works of service? Do they use the Bible to, to, to motivate people and show people how they should be doing every good work, loving their neighbor as they love themselves, loving those in the church and loving those outside the, the church? Does that come from the Bible? Let me ask you personally. What's your attitude to the Scriptures? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, do you not want God to speak to you personally? Don't you want to know God better? Don't you want to wake up each day and say, I know God better today than I did yesterday? But the way to do that is through the Bible. Now let me read some verses from Psalm 119. Just, just close your eyes and listen to what the psalmist writes. Could you say these words about the Bible? He says this, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. Oh, how I love your word. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I hate double-minded men, but I love your word. You are my refuge and my shield. I've put my hope in your, in your word. Your statutes are wonderful. I obey them. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Are those the kind of words that you would say to the Bible? 
And do you delight in it? Do you devour it? Do you know it? Do you want to know it better? Yeah, it's hard work. It's really hard work reading the Bible. But please make time for it. You know, when you get busy, what goes? Your exercise or the Bible reading? I get fed up with people who are very, very, very faithful at attending church week in, week out. And yet they sit in the pews week in, week out, and the Bible's never opened. That's really sad. But I also get fed up with the people who I meet with, and they talk about how their relationship with God is not quite what it used to be, and God feels distant, and it's not the same kind of love relationship they had five years ago. And I say, oh, how's your Bible reading? Oh, I don't read the Bible anymore. You want to hear God speak to you? He's promised to speak to you. You want to know him better, and yet you leave your Bible just closed on the shelf? Speaking personally, the times in my life where I have felt most distant from God and I've struggled to live a godly life and I've struggled to love people well and I've struggled to worship God are the times when my Bible has remained closed. And it's been all about me. But when I open the Word and I see, yeah, this is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching me and rebuking me and correcting me and training me and I want to be equipped for every good work and I love the Scriptures. I love the scriptures. They're just so precious. And you read them and you read them again and you read them again and you discover new truths and deeper truths. We do live in the last days. And there will be terrible times. But you ever thought about the fact that in God's kindness to us, you've got this? It's like the handbook on the world. And the handbook on your life, and the handbook on your almighty God who speaks to you as it is read and preached. So be discerning. Be discerning about what you listen to and who you listen to. But more than that, look for godly examples to follow, and then just love the Bible. On the bookstore, you'll find some aids to help you read the Bible. For the Love of God by Don Carson is a, a great aid. The Daily Bible Reading Schemes by Matthias Media is a great aid. Uh, John Piper's Godward Life, a great daily Bible reading scheme. Whatever it takes, please just love the Scriptures. Devour them, delight in them, soak yourself in them, and test everything against them. The same Scriptures that will bring you to faith will keep you in the faith. I'm going to give you a moment now just to pray by yourself, to think about your attitude towards the Bible, and then I'll close in prayer, and we'll sing some more. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. 
Father, we praise you for your precious word. We praise you for every word of scripture from the beginning to the end. We praise you that it sheds light to our lives. It shows us our next step. It equips us to live for you. It teaches us, rebukes us, and corrects us and trains us. We praise you for preserving it in English so that we can read it. We praise you for the translations that we have. We praise you for the copies of the Bible we have sitting at home right now. Lord, help us to be a church and a people who love your word. I ask that for Jesus' sake.